the gospel. Pray with me and for me. Lord, I'm so thankful for this story and how powerful it is and how it describes even what happens still to this day. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would burn with the truth of your gospel and with love for you. And I ask you to help me now as I preach. I pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I picked up a book about uh, two months ago called Journeys with Jerry by a guy named Rob Krogh. And it's cool, our church is actually mentioned in this book. Not because anything that our church did, but because I'm one of about a dozen youth group students that were in Jerry's youth group who are now in full-time vocational ministry. And I've told you in the past that through my time in that youth group, I was a high school senior, I became a Christian. I, for whatever reason, in the mystery of that moment, my heart came alive to God's word, I understood the truth, and ever since then I've been walking with the Lord. And I thought it would be cool to share with you about the Rainbow Room, the physical location where my heart came alive in the gospel. And I wonder if you're a Christian, where that happened for you. And maybe hearing what it looked like there for me will help you think about what it looked like for you, or maybe even heighten a desire for you to have that experience. So Rob writes this about the Rainbow Room. He says, perhaps it was appropriate that our youth group met in the Rainbow Room. This basement annex was a large carpeted room filled with hand-me-down sofas. One continuous roller coaster style rainbow stripe had been painted around the entire perimeter of the otherwise sky blue cinder block walls. The rainbow room could serve as a dual reminder of both the broad diversity of our community and the enduring faithfulness of God throughout the generations. Jerry used this space on a weekly basis to share truth with teenagers and shape our identities with fun conversations about God's word. The rainbow room occupies a prominent place in my memory of youth group. I can still smell the dusty old couches, feel my butt sink low into the weak springs, and picture the worn student Bible resting almost at eye level on my knees. That describes the physical location where the Lord opened my heart and many other students to the gospel, to this word. And in the words of our passage that Luke read for us today, my heart burned within me, and I want the same thing for you. I pray that that would happen for you, that God's word would come alive, that you would feel your heart warmed by it. Now, Luke 24, beginning in verse 13 and following, is the famous road to Emmaus story. I say famous because it is so well-written and well-loved. It only occurs in Luke's gospel, so Matthew, Mark, and John don't have an account of this. And um, it's it's definitely, I believe it's a historical account, but it's crafted with the work of an artisan. The language is phenomenal. The, it has all the elements of a good narrative. It has intrigue. It has irony. It's got a big climactic moment where their eyes are open and their hearts are burning. It's got life transformation. It even has Jesus disappearing from their sight. I mean, it's such a powerful story. And what it's describing is what happened on the late afternoon of that first Easter morning when the tomb was empty. And in verse 16, it says that their eyes were kept from recognizing Jesus. So two guys, or it's a man named Cleopas and a companion, it might have been his wife or somebody else, 
are walking seven miles from Jerusalem to a village called Emmaus, and Jesus draws up alongside them. This is the resurrected Christ, and it says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. It doesn't say who kept their eyes. It just puts it in the passive tense. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That's in verse 16, and way later in verse 31, it says, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. So I want to look at what happened between eyes being closed and eyes being opened. The eyes of their heart, you could say, or their eyes being able to recognize Jesus and his goodness. What happened in between those two things? Well, there are two big things that happened between their eyes being closed and their eyes being open. And one is that Jesus applied God's word to their history, and we're going to look at that. And Jesus applied the sacrament to their hearts, and we're going to look at that. And what we're going to find here is that hearts come alive through the word and through sacrament. And as Christians worshiping in the Anglican tradition, word and sacrament are important for us. In fact, physically, I'm standing at a pulpit which is dedicated to the ministry of the word. And right next to me is a table, the Lord's table, which is dedicated to the sacrament of Holy Communion. And this Sunday, there's also our, our, our baptismal font is up there too, because next Sunday at the early service at 745, we're going to have a baptism for one of the kids that had a fever and couldn't be baptized when we did it last time. So we've got word and sacrament represented physically by the architecture up here. And hearts come alive through word and through sacrament. This didn't just happen for them. For 2,000 years, this has been happening in various ways. For some of us, it happened in a a cinder block room painted with a rainbow around it. For others, well, I'd have to ask you your story to see where that happened and how it happened for you. But let's start with Jesus applying the word to their history. And by history, I mean his story, his story. That's what history is. And I'm speaking specifically to the last week of his story. In other words, they watched him be um, they give the upper, upper room discourse and then be betrayed and arrested and then be beaten and, and falsely accused and condemned to death and crucified, put in a grave, and then they found the tomb empty. In fact, the scriptures that he opens to their mind contain what scholars or, or many of us call a golden thread or a scarlet thread that runs all the way through from one cover to the next in this book. And it's pointing to God's man, the Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who is going to save people. And you can find this all the way through the Scriptures. This, is, this whole book is Christian Scripture, not just the New Testament, the Old Testament as well. It's pointing to the Messiah. And he is helping them understand this. Now, I'll tell you this. Probably once or twice a month, I hear one of you say to me, uh, I don't know the Bible. And I've never read the Bible. Something to that effect. And I want to say to you, that can be corrected. You can fix that problem. I want to encourage you to read the Bible on a regular basis and also read the whole thing through. Look for that scarlet thread of how Jesus is the Messiah and he's prophesied, long prophesied, and it goes all the way back to even Genesis 3. This golden thread is there right when the serpent tempts Adam and Eve, and God judges the serpent. He says, you're going to strike at the seed, the offspring of Eve. You're going to strike at his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And it's pointing to the defeat and victory on the cross of what Jesus would do. As early as Genesis 3, that thread starts, and it runs through all the scriptures. So what happens here is Jesus, sneaky 
Jesus comes up alongside these two on the road, and their eyes are kept from recognizing him, and he says, what are you guys talking about while you're walking? I mean, if ever there was a loaded question. They're talking about him, and he knew it, and he wanted to get them to say what they're talking about. And to his credit, Cleopas does a pretty good job of articulating concisely very important historical things. He almost gets it totally right. We could call this the gospel according to Cleopas. What are you guys talking about? Well, he says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people. That's right, he was a prophet, but certainly much more than that. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yeah, he kind of missed that detail a little bit, but he's close. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. There's the gospel according to Cleopas. And in those words, Luke is including a historical thing that happened, and now Jesus is about to correct and add on to their, their gospel, their theology. He's going to show them about how this is what had to happen. Now, in the words of Cleopas here, we have truth. We have history. You, you might remember, if you were here Easter morning, as I talked about the empty tomb, I gave four accounts that people, or four excuses that people will make for why Jesus didn't rise. And they're the four best counter-arguments, and all of them are bad. There's one I didn't mention. It's not about the tomb so much, but I hear it often, and maybe you've said it. People say, you're trusting that Jesus rose because of that book, because of what it says in the book, but how can you trust the book? It's full of contradictions. It was written like 100 years after this happened, and oral tradition got corrupted, and the church retrofit the story to line up with what they wanted to say. It's not history. Well, that's not true. It is history, and it wasn't written a hundred years after. In fact, almost every reputable scholar right now, all reputable scholars right now will say that this book, the New Testament, was written within 15 to 20 years of the resurrection, and many people were still alive. I think in this story, that's why Luke names Cleopas. And that's like a way of putting a footnote in a, in a research paper. One of them was named Cleopas who's probably still alive, so you can go ask him, did this really happen? I also suspect that's why his companion or his wife or whoever the other one was isn't named because she was probably dead by this point. So this was 15 or 20 years later. But Cleopas was probably still alive, and this is the way of saying, you can go ask Cleopas if this really happened. This was written within that generation. It was not corrupted over 100 years of oral tradition or something like that. Luke does this in his gospel on purpose. In fact, you'll remember from Christmas Eve that Luke chapter 2 talks about the census. In the days of Caesar Augustus, he declared a census that everyone had to be registered, which is why Mary and Joseph traveled to Bethlehem in the first place. He says this happened when Quirinius was governor. What he's doing is he's giving an address in history for when Jesus was born. And you can go look that up. Caesar Augustus is real. There are history books talking about this. Quirinius was one of the governors. You can look that stuff up. Luke wasn't making up a fiction story. 
He was creatively telling a historical one here. There's a man named Sir William Ramsey, who was a Scottish archaeologist, and in the 20th century, he was one of, if not the top archaeologists out there. But he had been schooled under German theological teaching, and some of the, the German scholars were the ones that were saying the Bible isn't trustworthy because it was written to in the second century after Christ, a hundred years later. And so he didn't use the Bible to line up his archaeological research. But after a while, he found that he had to because things kept pointing him back there. And specifically the book of Acts, which Luke wrote. Luke wrote Luke, and he also wrote Acts as kind of a two-volume thing. And he says, I'm doing this to draw up an orderly account of all the things that happened. He's doing good research. And what happens for this archaeologist is he says, quote, further study showed the book of Acts that it could bear the most minute scrutiny as an authority for the facts of the Aegean world, meaning the world around the Aegean Sea, the kind of Middle East, basically, where all that stuff happened in Acts. And, quote, that it was written with such judgment, skill, art, and perception of truth as to be a model of historical statement. This is not corrupted oral tradition. This is not a reverse-engineered church trying to make up a story so that it could grow. This is historical fact being recorded for us. And what happens on the road to Emmaus is that once Cleopas gives his version of the, of the story, Jesus rebukes him. He says some hard things. He says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. And then, um, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we've got the Bible being trustworthy, and we see the cross being plan A, not plan B. God didn't go, oh no, they rejected me. What am I going to do? Up, oh, son of God, you're going to have to go die on a cross. No, he knew that before the foundation of the world, and he laid out in Scripture all these prophecies, so many so that it is impossible that they could all come true in one person who was not the Messiah. And they all come true in the Messiah. I like how um, in this little book, More Than a Carpenter, Josh McDowell talks about an address in history that God beforehand gave a very specific address that would only be fulfilled in the Messiah. And this goes all the way back to the first people, starting with which of the three sons of Noah the Messiah's line was going to come through. Remember, God flooded the whole world and, and spared Noah's family, and he had three sons. And all the people that are on the earth to this day go back to those three men. And he right away declares that it's through Shem and not the other two. And so there goes two-thirds of humanity. So right, take all the world, he just got rid of two-thirds, and now we're down to one-third. And he starts going through the pro this, in this book, he goes through the prophecies about who the Messiah is going to be, and it starts narrowing and narrowing and narrowing and narrowing. And he says, if you take just the 48 strongest ones, the chance, the probability that a person other than the Messiah could fulfill these is one times 10 to the 157th power. That's like a trillion trillions or something. It's too many numbers. We don't have a word for how many zeros that is. The point is, there's an address in history, and he summarizes by saying this. So in terms of lineage, the Messiah must be born, the seed of a woman, the lineage of Shem, the race of the Jews, the line of Isaac, the line of Jacob, the tribe of Judah, the family of Jesse, and the house of David. 
narrowing, 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 narrowing. And this is all written like a thousand years before Jesus arrives. And then, talking about the social circumstances of the events of this history, his story, we see some things that Jesus couldn't control. He couldn't, he couldn't force his life to fit the, these prophecies, that the Jews, his own people, would reject him, but the Gentiles would accept him. And that, one, going, going from Psalm 41 and Zechariah 11, one, he would be betrayed, two, by a friend, three, for 30 pieces of silver, and that the money will, four, be cast on the floor of the temple. That's just some of the prophecies. When Jesus was hanging on the cross dying for our sins, he quoted Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by David in the year 1019 BC. And it doesn't say the word crucifixion, but it actually describes what happens. They pierced my hands and my feet. My heart melts like wax. My bones are all out of joint. And they cast lots for my garments. Do you realize that's a thousand years ahead this was written? And it's 800 years before the Romans invented crucifixion as a way to kill someone. My point is that the scripture is trustworthy. And what Jesus did is he took them back to those kind of prophecies and he said, look, this was always the plan and I'm the fulfillment of the plan. And as he did this, their hearts started to burn with the truth. They were bursting with a sense of this is right. Oh my goodness, God has, this isn't, there's no accident here. This is rock solid evidence. We know who the Messiah is and their hearts were on fire. After he disappears, he goes back to Jerusalem and they actually run there. They run back seven miles and when they show up and find the others, now, now on both sides they've seen Jesus and Jesus appears again. And it says in verse 45, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He's got to do that for us. But it's hard for him to do that if you're never in the scriptures. And so he got Cleopas and, and his companion talking about these things, and then he opened their minds by sharing with them how this is God's plan in the word. Hearts come alive through the word, but also through the sacrament. Jesus applied the sacrament as well. So I don't know why he did this, but when they get to Emmaus, he pretends like he's going to go further. Like, great walking with you guys. Take care. I'm heading that way. And, but they, they, I don't know if he was testing their hospitality skills or what, but he, they prevail on him and he agrees to stay. Come on, Jesus, or they don't know who is, who is, I don't know what name he gave them. Maybe he didn't give them a name. I never thought about that. But hey, friend on the way, it's late. The day is spent. It's going to be dark. Why don't you stay with us tonight? And he agrees and goes in. And they make him dinner, and he presumes to take the role of the head, head of the house who would normally bless the meal. And he takes the bread, and he does four things. He takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives, which actually is the Eucharist service, by the way, those four things. Take, bless, break, give. And as he does, does this, I don't know if they saw the nail marks when he held out the bread, or just the Spirit applied the sacrament in that moment to them. Their eyes were open, and they went, oh, it's Jesus where their eyes had been kept shut before from recognizing, now they were opened. It was through the breaking of bread. And when they give the testimony to the church in Jerusalem, what happened, they say, he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It was in the sacrament. Our hearts burned when he talked about the word, and then when the sacrament happened, it all came together. Hearts come alive through the word and through the sacrament. Now, 
there's a scale in this church when it comes to Bible knowledge, Bible reading, Bible understanding. Some say, I don't know the Bible, I've never read it. Others, like myself and many of you, have been reading this book for years, since I was 17. I've been reading this book. I know it pretty well, and there's a danger in that. Sometimes I can be like, oh yeah, the Road to Emmaus story. I can almost quote it. I know it so well, and I don't go to it necessarily expecting God to speak a fresh word to me from it. Maybe that's a description of you. Maybe your quiet times, maybe your Bible reading has become rote because you stopped expecting your heart to be set on fire. And so it's become lackluster. Some of you need to read the Bible for the first time. Some of you need to reread it with the reminder that this is living and active, that God speaks to his people through his word. Hearts come alive through the word and through the sacrament. And then, of course, I'm preaching to the choir because you're actually here this morning, but we gotta be at the table. We've gotta come to the sacrament every Sunday. I know we hate the masks, but we suffer through that stuff just to get here and be part of it or pick up the consecrated elements so that we can do it at home if we can't be here because we need it because hearts come alive through the word and through the sacrament. Jesus is known to us in the breaking of the bread. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna sing a song called What a Beautiful Name that talks about Jesus being the word from the beginning. And there are no surprises in here. This was prophesied long ago. And I'm going to pray that the Lord would take his word and set your heart on fire with love for Jesus. So would you join me in praying? Lord, I begin with a prayer of thanks for every person hearing me who knows what I'm talking about with a heart set on fire. They've they've come to know the scriptures are true and trust in Jesus. I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that you'd renew a love for your word. And for those in here who don't know your word and have not had this experience, Holy Spirit, would you come, flood this this room with your presence and give the gift that you gave to these companions on the road to Emmaus. Help us see you in the breaking of bread and set our, our hearts on fire with love for you through your word. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.